All right. There you go. Thank you, Jason. So let me do this real quick. Thank you, Fred, for grabbing <laughs> the, uh, the computer. Charlie, could you hit the projector button? It's the little white. Yep. Yeah, totally. I, I, um, it has been, well, again, I mean, I know we're all, everyone has things in life. It's definitely been a, a very stressful time these last month uh, between um, uh, just, just the things that have to go on here at work in the church. Um, but, uh, and so I know we've had to take a, a pause on the Deuteronomy thing, and we'll get to that soon. I'm very thankful for that. But I am enjoying this study. This is something that I had done a while back and now got to revisit uh, years later in a different place with a different group of people we're talking about, um, and then even the Lord just refining and changing me over the years. But this has been a, um, this has been a blessing, studying this together. Uh, and basically, if you're new here, uh, we've been talking about, we're calling this whole thing um, uh, legalism, liberty, and love. We talked the first week about what's the difference between legalism and antinomianism, and that the remedy of that is love, like both uh, understanding of who we are in Christ, and love and submission to Christ, and then uh, uh, deference or, or preference of one another in love. You know, that's always what uh, fights through those those uh, tendencies of ours to, to drift into those categories. Um, and then last week we talked about, then we started looking at 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10. And last week uh, we talked about uh, love laying aside liberty. So I'm excited for this week's sermon because Paul is going to continue to further uh, this, this conversation with the Corinthians. He's going to get deeper into this. Um, and this was a very, very convicting study this week. Um, I felt like I was repenting continually. He was bringing to my mind things in my own life where I... Uh, I'm, I'm not living in, in preference or, or loving others, uh, both in my personal family and just in friendships in general. And um, and so it was it was a humbling study for me. I was going to say, if you didn't like last week's sermon, you're going to hate this one because it's like <laughs> we're going to dig out more of that stuff that I think all of us naturally push against. You know what I mean? Um, and if you don't like John MacArthur, you're not going to like this sermon either because I'm going to quote him like 15 times. That might be an exaggeration, uh, but. I'm going to quote him a lot because as I was listening to his sermons, it was really listening to his sermons, which another point is really cool. So he preached this back in 1976, which just shows you if you just stick with what the word says, they're timeless truths. You know, it's when we start bringing in all these cultural things into our sermons that they become dated. And, you know, and I, I love what you can read a J.C. Ryle sermon or Charles Spurgeon sermon or a MacArthur, something like that. And it's just like it, it, he could have preached it last week, you know, and. and any of those guys, um, but I, I've really been enjoying listening to him preach through this, um, and uh, and I read other expositions. Uh, I've, I've been digging into some of this stuff, um, and uh, I think there was just some some uh, very uh, wise and discerning things that came out that I'm going to quote him on in some of this, uh, and I think it probably has to do with his his faithfulness and his application in his life. But all that being said, I just thought. We're going, to dig, we're going to dive in deeper. Last week we talked about, oh, we're going to call this to this week, love refuses rights for others. Love refuses rights for others. And this is going to come from 1 Corinthians 9. So if you weren't here last week, this is a, a, a quick review. Uh, basically, last week we talked about love lays aside liberty for others. And we talked about, we looked at, at 1 Corinthians 8, I gave, we talked about the context of the Corinthian church and all of the things that, that the Corinthian church was fighting through. These are believers, but they're believers that are coming in with a lot of worldliness, a lot of selfishness, a lot of pride, a lot like us, and they're fighting through these things. They're writing Paul because they desire to do things in a way that does glorify the Lord, and, cause he, and, and beginning in uh, chapter uh, 7, he starts addressing questions that they've written him. The first six chapters, he's talking about, in general, their reputation and the things that the church needs to hear. And then in chapter 7, he starts answering these questions that they're specifically asking him about. So again, sometimes we can look at the Corinthian church and just think, are these even believers? I mean, they're suing each other. There's at least one person in the church that is in an incestuous relationship with his mother-in-law. I mean, there's some, there's some messed up stuff going on in that church. There's, there's you know, idolatry. There's immorality. And you look at it and you're like, are these true believers? But first, the Lord calls them believers. Secondly, Paul shepherds them like believers. And they're asking questions because there is some desire there 
to, to submit their life to Christ and to, and to, and to, to live in a way that glorifies him and, and loves others. And I think that's what Paul's hitting at in these chapters, is, is that love of one another, that deference and preference of one another, the weaker brother and the stronger brother, all those sort of things. Uh, he's, they obviously had asked him about meat being sacrificed to idols and whether or not that's okay to eat. Um, and so we talked about that last week, and, and the, like I said, we're not really, there's not a direct application, because I don't think many of us are really struggling with whether or not we should eat meat sacrificed to idols, because that's just not part of the culture that we're in. But the implications and the application that he is making here has direct uh, uh, say on our life and, and does have um, uh, implications on cultural things that we are walking through when we talk about these gray areas where it's not necessarily a sin. It's, you know, it's a preference thing. It's a freedom thing. And Paul's addressing that and what we do with our freedom. And so last week we talked about the fact that love will lay aside liberty for others. We said love will abandon liberty for the good of others and the glory of Christ. We, we looked at the first eight verses last week. We talked about pride destroying others. He was saying, you know, he's talking about knowledge. They have, a, they have right theology. Their theology was spot on when it came to, there, there's, no, there's only one God. Idols aren't real. The meat sacrificed to idols isn't tainted, and there's not like a demon living in it. You can eat it. It's just meat. It's cheaper, so eat it. There's freedom. But he also says that love will develop others. And when there is a choice of conscience or conviction when it come, regards this, this meat that is a freedom to eat, that, that love would edify and not tear down a brother. And then we talked about the fact that Jesus Christ shed his blood for these people. And you never want to do anything that harms those who are striving to follow him. And, uh, and then finally, Paul says in, in uh, verse 13, you know, if, if it would, actually I'll quote it in a second. Uh, but basically, if he, uh, well, let me just quote it now. This is the last, this is the end of 8, 11 through 13. He says, through your knowledge, again, knowing that this is just me, it's not a big deal. The idol's not even real. He says, he who is weak is ruined. The brother for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. So this thing, meat, is just meat. But the meat is allowing an opportunity to see whether or not you're willing to sin against your brother and then therefore sin against Christ, now it does have moral implications. Not the meat itself, but your motives, intentions, and even the way that you conduct yourselves around other believers. And he says, therefore, Paul says, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again for this purpose so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. So what he's prioritizing here is a love for others that is willing to lay aside a liberty out of a desire for them to be edified and grow in Christ and, 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 uh, and grow in their faith. And that's just something that the mature believer would do. A mature believer would lay aside liberty out of a desire to love. That was the point of last week. And, so, and then we talked about the, the, the correlation between this and Romans 14 and Galatians 5, where Paul says almost the exact same thing. Every time you're either fighting against um, uh, a legalistic or lawless tendency, and the answer is always love. In Romans 14, we brought this up last week. Again, he says, if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Again, it may be a preference thing. It may be a gray area. It may be a neutral thing. And you may have freedom to do it. But if because of your freedom you are hurting your brother, well, that's not according to love, which is the law of Christ, that we love one another the way that he loved us and sacrificed himself for us. So he says, do not destroy with your food him whom Christ died, uh, him for whom Christ died, and do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean. Yeah, so there's your good theology. It's clean. But they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything by which your brother stumbles. And then finally in 15, he kind of sums it up and he says, We who are strong, so if you you assess yourself as strong in the faith, well then part of your both responsibility and strength is the fact that you would bear the weaknesses of those without strength. That's what we do. That's what love does. And not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good and to his edification. For even Christ didn't please himself. Again, let's look at the standard. Christ himself, it says, as it was written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. He bore uh, uh, the, 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 the reproach that, that uh, 
that was aimed at us. I mean, he bears that for us. And he says, now may the God who gives preference and encouragement grant you uh, to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. In other words, he's defined, I mean, Christ told us, you must love one another the way that I have loved you. Greater love has no my first friend. Paul is basically spelling that out in this situation. This is what that looks like in preference situations. You bear the weaknesses of one another like Christ has done for us. You accept one another like Christ has done for us. This is what we do. This causes unity within the body. And it's a unity founded on love. And, uh, and, and MacArthur, I think I said this last week, calls it the freedom of not using your freedom. Um, so this was the example of Christ to us. This is what he commends us to do. I just uh, quoted some of these, but this is what Jesus himself said in John 15. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one in this. He laid down his life for his friends. Yes, that's talking about what he did on the cross, but it's also talking about what he did in his humanity in this life for the entire life. Again, which Paul lays out in the verse we just quoted, this is what that looks like. This is what Christ would do in the area of deference or preference. Philippians 2, same thing. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, he still was fully God as he was here with us. He did not lack who he was. I mean, his, his, his character and his substance, he's fully God. He deserved full worship, full glory, full, full submission and obedience. But he said he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant or a slave. And being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so, again, that's the example that we're striving to follow after. Even if it costs you your life, you're willing to give it up uh, for the sake of others and in submission uh, to God. And again... Very rarely do we have to give up our physical life for Christ, at least in our culture. But very often, we're clinging to things in our life that we're unwilling to give up for Christ, and, and it's hurting others. Does that make sense? And so, again, it's like apply that to your daily living. And then Matthew 16, Jesus said this way, same principle, uh, but articulated different. He said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So again, this is a, a self-denial of, of our desires and our life and what we are. It's a letting go of all that, that we are, taking up your cross, at walking to death with Christ and following me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sh- sake shall find it. So again, we always make these applications to our justification or our glorification, but we need to make this uh, play out into our sanctification the present uh, walk that we have with Jesus Christ, and the decisions we're making on a daily basis. This is what Christ did. Christ laid down his life for us, and laying down our life for our friends may mean giving up something that is not sinful or not harmful and not evil because you love Christ and you love them more than you love yourself. Uh, Love is willing to lay aside a liberty for other people. And so this morning, like I said, we're going to dive deeper into this because Paul dives deeper into this. And we're going to look at another level of self-denial and self-control that comes into play for the sake of the gospel uh, and the glory of Christ. Uh, Sometimes our duty as Christians, our responsibilities as representatives of Christ will demand us to forsake God-granted rights, not just freedoms, for the sake of his name. And so this is what we're going to look at this morning in 1 Corinthians 9. We're going to call it, we're going to say, love enslaves oneself for the sake of the gospel and the glory of Christ. And we're going to look at the fact that, first, Paul makes a point. God does give us rights. There are things laid out biblically that God says, this is the way it should be. This is what I desire and what I've ordained. But we're also going to see that love gives up rights. That love enslaves self for Christ and love controls self for Christ. So this is what we're going to look at this morning. If you have your Bibles, open up to 1 Corinthians 9, and we'll read through it together. And like I said, we're going to fly over it. This isn't a a deep dive, but it's good to see the the argument over these three and a little more, three and a half chapters, uh, and and what he's pushing at here, and to see what he's saying to the Corinthian church. Uh, 
So the first thing he, he says here is, and we're going to call this God gives us rights, but Paul talks about his own example. Uh, Paul uses his own life to illustrate this principle for the Corinthians uh, by, by, by showing them what he has done for Christ for their sake. And he does this a lot. This isn't only in Corinthians where he says things like this. And, and you're going to see him at the, at the very beginning or near the beginning of this book. And then at the very end of this, I don't call it argument, but this, this, uh, this statement that he's making here. He tells them in 1 Corinthians 4, therefore, I urge you to imitate me. Now, again, not that Paul's saying I'm the new standard. Christ is not the standard. He's saying in relation to the things you've asked me about, remember how I lived amongst Follow the example that I was trying to set as I submitted myself to Jesus Christ and I was striving to follow him and then apply that to yourself. It's the same thing that Christ did for us. God has always called his people to love, right? Even the Old Testament. We're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, strength, love your neighbor as yourself. Christ came, exemplified that love perfectly as a human being and then said, now... Therefore, you love one another the way that I loved you. So he became the actual human standard that pulled it off, the only one that could. Paul is doing the same thing, but he's saying, as a slave and as a servant, as a follower, not the perfect example, but an example of what Christ-like submission and love towards him and others look like, at least amongst you. You saw it with your own eyes. Just do that same thing. Now, again, as Christians, we're always scared to say, hey, you follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Because there's that thing in us that's like, sounds super proud. Or, I'm not a very good example. But that ought to be what we're striving to be, right? You ought to be able to say to your children, you follow me as I follow Christ. Even in your sinfulness. In your sinfulness, you're still being an example of repentance. You're asking for forgiveness. You're reconciling those relationships. And so, again, if there's not hypocrisy, if there's a true desire to follow him, then you ought to be able to say these words, even if you want to couple it with, now, I know I'm a sinner, and I know I fail all the time, and I know, I mean, that's fine, but that's built in as followers of Christ. At the very end of this, Paul's going to say, again, the same thing. He's going to say, be imitators of me, just as I am of Christ. And so, when it comes down to all these things we're talking about, Paul's saying, I did this when I was with you. Remember what I did when I was with you. And just be willing to live like that amongst one another. And so Paul tried to give him, or did give them, a good example of what giving up liberties and giving up rights look like out of a love for these particular people. And that's kind of what he's saying here. So he starts out in verses 1 and 2 by asking the Corinthians these questions. First, he says, am I not free? Well, the answer is yes, you are. You're free in Christ. And he's like, am I not an apostle? And of course you are. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ. Have, have I not seen Jesus our Lord? He, he definitely did. He talks about Christ, not only on the road to Damascus, but then training him up before sending him out. He saw Christ. And he says, and are you not my work? Even this church itself is proof that not only did I do these things, but I am who I am. And so, again, we talk about the weaker and the stronger brother. Paul is a stronger brother. Paul is a godly man. Paul is an apostle of Christ. He's been with the Lord. He started this church there. He's free in Christ. And then he says, if to others I am not an apostle, at least I am for you. Now, other people might have problems with who I am, but not you, church in Corinth. I was there. I was there, and, and you know, when they, when they stoned Sosthenes, He's up at the, at the court, and, and you know, he's with me now. Crispus, who started the synagogue here, he's with me now. I stayed here for a year and a half preaching in your synagogue, teaching you the truth, starting the church in Corinth. Other people may be like, I don't know about this Paul guy, but you can't say that. So he's basically appealing to what they know about him. Paul is saying he is an apostle of Christ. And then he takes it further, and he says this. My defense to those who examine me, is this. All right? So he's going to give it a defense. Because of who he is, because of what Christ has called him to do, he says, do we not have a right to eat and drink? What he's basically saying there is, because I am an apostle of Jesus Christ sent out to start the church, should you not have taken care of me? Should, could, could I not have demanded as a right, because of who I am and what I am doing, to be fed and to be, and to be nourished and sustained while I was with you? He says, do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? 
Peter takes along a wife. Everybody takes care of Peter and his wife. Barnabas takes along a wife. I'm sorry, not Barnabas. The other apostles take along a wife. And, and people take care of their families. I mean, that's built in. You want to take care of the families of the servant of God. And if they're traveling around planting churches, it's not just you take care of the husband. The wife's got to fend for herself. You take care of the family. And Paul's saying, did I not have a right to, to be taken care of by you? I mean, you do it for the other apostles. And other churches do it for the other apostles. Or he says, or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Even when Paul was there, he worked. If you go back and read in Acts, when he was in Corinth, he worked at night so he could preach during the day. And so he's like, so is it just me and Barnabas that have to work on the side to be able to fund our ministry so that we can preach the gospel? You would take care of anybody else that came in here. And he says, who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Now he's given examples in the real world. No one expects someone to go out and fight for their country, but then they need to work at night to make money so they can go fight for free for their country. He's saying a soldier gets paid for doing what a soldier does, right? A, a, a farmer, he who plants a vineyard, and does, uh, who plants a vineyard does not eat of the fruit of it. No one expects the farmer to go out and labor all day to feed all other people, but he needs to go and have another job to pay for him and his household, and he needs to do this out of the goodness of his own heart. Or who tends a flock and doesn't use the milk for the flock? So again, as a shepherd, part of being a shepherd is you get your sustenance, you get your... Uh, 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 provisions for being a shepherd and he's making the point so in the same way i as an apostle of christ or a preacher a missionary that the people that are proclaiming god's word ought to make their living by the job that they're doing he's saying or is it just me that's okay everybody understands that when it comes to soldiers farmers uh peter and the other apostles but me for some reason me that's not built in and so his his he's making a defense He obviously has that right. But then he goes on to say this. Paul uh, Paul talks about his his right. He says, am I not speaking these things according to... I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? So he takes it even deeper. Does not the law also say these things? So it's not just, okay, you get it in your own judgment. Farmers, soldiers, yeah, I get it, and uh, and shepherds and, and pastors. They need to be paid for what they do. But he says, but look at what God says in his word. He says, uh, the law says it, for it is written in the law of Moses, so in the word of God, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. Now, God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? And then, uh, so here you have basically uh, an apostolic exposition of Deuteronomy 25.4. He's saying here, God's not just talking about oxen. He's using an example of an oxen and then applying that to the servants of God. He says... Uh, God is concerned about those who are doing the work. Yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher ought to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. He goes on to say after that, if we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? He says, nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endured all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services and uh, eat the food of the temple and those who attend regularly to the altar have the share from the altar? He's saying the whole priestly uh, law, the Old Testament. I mean, the Old Testament as a whole points to the fact that Israel should take care of the priest, that God takes care of the priest by the work that they do. They were fed from the sacrifices. They received from the, the offerings of the Israelites and then even tithed from the own offerings that they received back to the Lord. This is part, God took care of the priest. Israel took care of the priest. Shouldn't you take care of the church? Those who are preaching in the church, those are the missionaries that are out there, the pastors that are out there, the apostles that started the church. It's built into the word of God. This is what God demands. This is the will of God. So he's saying, I mean, you know, first and foremost, am I not one of these? From your own human judgment, shouldn't this be happening for me? Doesn't God command this? And look at this at the very end. He just throws in Christ there. So also the Lord Jesus Christ directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. That's just the will of God. That those who preach his word and, 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 and do this 
as an occupation, whether it's Paul all the way down to Shane Kohler and everyone in between, they should get their living from the gospel just like anyone else that, that, that lives like this. And it's a direct ma- command of the Lord Jesus Christ. They ought to be paid for their work of service. The Lord directed those who proclaimed the gospel to get their living from the gospel. He articulates this again in 1 Timothy as he's talking to Timothy about the church in Ephesus. He says to him, so this is what he's instructing Timothy, who's going to be the elder of the church in Ephesus and is going to find elders for the church in Ephesus. Here's how you take care of your pastors. Elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor. I mean, you ought to think of what they're doing and, 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 and the weight of responsibility. And, and if they're doing it well and they're doing it both in submission to the Lord and you can see that expending themselves for the body of Christ, they're worthy of double honor. Especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while it's threshing. There he is again, quoting Deuteronomy 25 and making this application to it. And the laborer is worthy of his wages. So this is a God-given and God-demanded right. It wasn't like it was a preference issue. He's saying both Christ himself, the Old Testament, and God himself demand that he get paid for the work that he's doing. It's not a preference. It's not a gray area. And Paul refused this right, his own right to be paid and sustained by the church, out of a love for these people that he was ministering to. It wasn't just Corinth where he did this. He also did it in Thessalonica. In 2 Thessalonians, he says, you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. So same thing. When he went to Thessalonica, he started the church in Thessalonica. He obviously worked. And he worked so that they would not have to contribute to him. He says, we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. And we did this, not because we do not have the right. He's saying, we do have the right. You should be, have taken care of us. Not rebuking them, but just saying we have the right. He says, uh, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. In other words, he saw the working and what he was striving to do, not only as keeping a burden off of their shoulders, it would also allow them to see that he's got no strings attached. He's coming in and starting these churches, and it's not like he gets a few converts, and he's like, okay, you should be paying me now. Because again, that, that might cause them to be like, wait a minute. You know, so he's like, we can get that out of the way. And he wanted to be an example. You laid down what is, you believe is your rightful and, and even God-granted right out of a love for others, you're willing to expend yourself and give up those things because you are striving to love others and to build up the body of Christ and to win souls. And so, Paul's saying, this is an example. And, and again, like, just like we have a Christ, an example of what love looks like, sometimes people need to see it because they just don't get it. You know, what, nat- what is natural for us is to be like, well, I'm free in Christ. What's natural for us is to be like, well, th- well I have a right for that. I mean, that's, that's, that's what is expected and Paul's saying, well, but, but look, at, look at how I lived in front of you, and look at what Christ has done for us. God gives us rights, but sometimes love requires us to give up those rights. That's part of love. I bet you do this with your children often, and I bet you do it with people close to you often. But sometimes when it gets into this realm, outside the immediate home, all of a sudden it's like, well, wait a minute. You're imposing on my rights. You're imposing on my liberties. But this is what the Lord has done. MacArthur said it this way, um, and this came from one of his sermons. He says, as Christians, we have rights. Rights that can be defended, but rights that can equally be set aside. Beloved, as we live with each other and we love each other, and as we serve each other in the church, we have to recognize that there are some things that aren't wrong to do in themselves, but they are offensive, and thus they become wrong for us. And sometimes we have to limit our liberty for love's sake. It's a small price to pay because I would think to myself that the joy experienced in loving my brother would be infinitely superior to the joy in exercising my liberty to the harm of my brother. That was a really good way to say it. Sometimes it might hurt and it might be hard to lay something aside, but the joy that you receive and understand that you're, that, that you're sacrificing, that you're striving to imitate Christ and you're laying aside something that is yours. It belongs to you out of a love for others. The joy that comes from that far outweighs the joy that you receive by expressing your freedoms and your liberties and your rights and standing on those things. 
And I think that is a wonderful, wonderful quote. The next thing Paul makes the point of is that love gives up its rights. So Paul had rights. Paul showed that he had rights. And at the very end of showing his right for all these things, he says in the next verse, but I have used none of these things. I never demanded it. I never stood on it. I never told you that you need to give it to me. In fact, I just gave it up. And that is the principle. Love gives up rights. He says in verse 15, but I have used none of these things. Everything he just laid out, he just let go. He laid those things aside. He says, and I'm not writing these things so that it will be done for my case. And MacArthur, when he's preaching this, it was so funny. Because again, I'm listening to the audio. And over and over, he's like telling them, I'm not telling you to pay me more. I'm not telling you that I need more money. He's just saying, this is what God says. I just want you to understand what it says. You should take care of your pastors. You should take care of their families. But, but what Paul is saying here is, I'm not, I'm not writing it so, so you're like, oh, we should have done that. I'm not writing it as a rebuke. I'm not telling you you, you didn't do what was a, a, a God-given right for me. He's saying, I did it purposefully for two reasons. One, so I'd have the joy. Two, so I'd be an example because I'm striving to submit to Christ. He says, it would be better for me to die than to have any man make my boast an empty one. Now, again... The, the English translation of that word boast, where all of a sudden are like, wait a minute, is he boasting in this? It's not a pri- prideful boast. It's, it's actually talking, it's the same word that's translated in other places, joy. He's saying, I would rather die than to have this joy of knowing that I laid that aside because I love you than to have your gift given to me. Does that make sense? I don't know if I articulate that well. But he's saying, the joy I had in serving you was more than any payment you give me. I'm not writing you because the payment and I'm not writing you to shame you I'm saying I willingly did this out of a love for Christ and a love for you joy that I got out of giving up my rights for you far exceeds any financial gain that I could have received from you I'm not writing you to take that away joy is enough does that make sense so he's saying Paul had joy in his self-denial Paul denied himself every God-given right that should be given to him both in Corinth and Thessalonica, and he probably did this in multiple places. Um, and, and he received joy from that, and he rejoiced in that. It wasn't something he had to do. It wasn't something God commanded him to do. It wasn't something that uh, he had a biblical mandate, and the word of God said, as an, a missionary or as an apostle, you should receive no payment. He did this out of a love, and, and he received the joy from it. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, he says it this way. He says, or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel to you without charge? And then he says, he was getting paid. He's like, I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to serve you. It's just a, he's not saying he actually went out and and, and stole money. He's saying other churches were supporting me when I was preaching to you. Churches that were much poorer than you guys. They were giving out of their poverty to support me so I could preach to you for free. And I was making tents and other things with Aquila and Priscilla. But you got to think about that. So he's saying, listen, I mean, people paid him. People gave to Paul. People supported Paul in his ministry. But he's telling the church in Corinth, listen, when I was present with you, I was in need. And I was not a burden to anyone. For when a brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. And in everything, I kept myself from being a burden to you. And I will continue to do so. Is I'm going to come back. I don't want a penny. I'm going to continue to give up my right because I love you and I don't want anything, anything that you could see in my life to become a hindrance to the gospel and for you to anyway think that I'm swindling you. Again, we, we know from Acts 18 when he went to Corinth, that's what he did. He stayed up at night. He was building tents or making tents with uh, Aquila and Priscilla because they were tent makers. Um, and, uh, and this is just what Paul did. And so Paul's like, I had joy in giving up my rights for you. And he's, and he's not saying this to shame him. He's saying, you do the same thing. He's commending them to follow his example. Stop standing on your rights. Stop standing on your freedoms. Stop declaring your liberties and being like, I don't like when weaker brothers impose on my liberties. And he's like, give that stuff up and love others the way I loved you. You think you're strong? That's what strong people do. You think you're mature? That's what maturity looks like. You think that you're loving like Christ's love? Well, that's what he did. Give up your liberties and give up your rights. He had a joy, and he's wanting them to experience that same joy. Like I said, it's a joy that you can't have without doing it. Love willingly sacrifices for others. A greater love has no one than this. He laid down his life for his friends. And one of the things 
that we know is misused freedoms and misused liberties within the church cause division and discord. When we're all declaring what we think our freedoms are and what our convictions are and what our preferences are, all that does is create little pockets and you find people like, yeah, I agree, and we're over here. You know, Well, I don't think that's right, and you're over here. And it just causes disunity in the body of Christ rather than giving up your preference and giving and deferring to one another out of love. Um, and one of the most common ways that you see this happen is when you have a gathering of a little group of people that want to either share the justification of their freedom. Uh, where in the Bible does it say that? I don't see it says that. We all have this freedom. And they're like, yeah, I have that freedom too. And, and they group together. Or the participation of that freedom. They like to participate in the same. Now, again, it is a freedom. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that you can't get together with your friends and, and share a freedom that you have in Christ. But to let the justification and the participation of those freedoms become a cause of disunity and discord in the church, now you're in sin. Does that make sense? Have your freedoms, but don't do it at the expense of the relationship of others in the church. And don't cause your little clique that is like your identity is that freedom. And then you stand in judgment over your brother and your sister in Christ because they don't share the same conviction or freedom. You don't want your freedoms or your rights to cause disunity and discord in the church and to cause division in the church because that is clear sin. Ephesians 5, right? The deeds of the flesh are, look right in the middle of the big sandwich there, and it's just like factions, divisions, disunity. It's just all that stuff that comes from selfishness and pride. And so we can't go there. Paul's focus is on the good of others, the glory of Christ, the unity of the church. And he was willing to forsake anything for those, for those purposes. The love and good of others, the glory of Jesus Christ, and the unity of the body of Christ. He's like, I'd give up anything for that. And he did. He was a good example of that. I mean, you look at his life, all that he gave up, gave up and, 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 and ultimately laid down his life for the church. And he, and he even says in Romans 9, actually, this is a good, a good quote. Talking about his love for his fellow Israelites, he's like, I would give up my soul if it were even possible. He says in Romans 9, he, he says, uh, actually, that's not Romans 9. Here it is. I'm telling you the truth, and I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. So he's like, I'm not speaking in hyperbole here. I mean this, that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed separated for Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh who are Israelites. That's love. That's impossible. Christ chooses, holds, and keeps his own, and you can't lose your salvation. You can't give it away to somebody else. But Paul's saying, I love them so much, and I'm not speaking with hyperbole, and the Holy Spirit of God attests that I'm speaking truth right now. I would give that up. I would be eternally separated from Christ if I knew that meant the salvation of my people. That's love. It's not just giving up your preferences, and it's not just giving up your rights. Paul's saying, I would give up my eternal life if it meant me knowing that that would cause all of my brethren to have eternal life. That's love. That's love. That's what Christ did for us, right? Christ did it. Only Christ has the capability of giving up his life and that causing us to have eternal life. But I believe Paul loved Christ in a way that you and I just haven't gotten there and don't experience. And he's saying, I would, I would be willing to sacrifice eternity if it meant knowing that the Israelites would be saved. And again, that's, that's just the bottom line. We should be willing to give up anything and everything especially preferences, liberties, and rights, if it meant that the gospel of Christ is unhindered and that our brothers and sisters are being sanctified more because of us laying aside our liberties. He goes on in the next verses, and we're calling this love enslaves self for Christ. He goes on to talk about self-denial and self-control. Paul says in verse 19, for though I am free of all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. That's, that's the purpose statement right there. I'm free. I'm free. I don't care how you judge me. He says that later, right? He could care less what you're 
judgment is of him. He could care less if you think he's this or that, and he could care less what you're convinced. He's like, you're not my judge. I'm not even my own judge. I'll stand before Jesus Christ. Paul gets that. And, and he knows that he is free from all men, and he is free in Christ. But he says, I have made myself a slave to all for this purpose so that I might win more. That's the point. The reason he lays down his life, the reason he gives up his rights, the reason he sacrifices himself, and the reason he would even, if he could, be willing to give up his soul for his fellow countrymen is this desire to win more to Christ. Fully knowing that Christ calls all that belong to him to himself, that it's only Christ that can justify and sanctify and glorify. It's only Christ that can do the work. But we are sent into this world to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and to teach them to follow Jesus Christ and to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is our calling. This is what we're called to do. And Paul's saying, if, if, it, if it were to uh, cause me to win more, I would do anything for anyone. Though we're free in Christ, we enslave ourselves to all men so that we may win more to Christ. That's got to be our heart. Again, forget your preferences and forget your rights. Let's pull it down to what we're called to be. We're called to be ambassadors of Christ that go out and make disciples. A lot of times, the reason that we're so strong on our liberties is because we're not doing the very thing we're on this earth to do. We're not concerned about the souls of other people. We're not concerned about their eternal life. We're more concerned about our freedom and then living as close to the culture or as close to our preferences as we can. And, Christ, and Paul is making the point here, stop. Stop that. Again, we're not saying you're not free. We're not saying you don't have preferences. We're not saying those things are sin. We're saying get over here and be willing to give up anything for the souls of those around you, whether that's your family, whether that's people in this room, whether that's uh, people at work or people in your neighborhood. And that's what he gets at here. He says, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. To the Jews, I became like a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those under the law, as under the law, so that not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are, are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak, I became weak so that I might win the weak. Every time, to win, to win, to win, to win. He's striving to win souls to Christ. I've become all things to all men so that I may, by all means, save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. That's the point. That's the bottom line. Paul's saying, you know, you know what motivated me to not work when I was with you? You know what motivated me to lay that aside? I wanted to win every soul possible here, and I didn't want anything to be a hindrance to that. Even if it meant laboring all night, building tents, robbing other churches and all that, I cared about your soul, and I wanted to win more to Christ. Again, sometimes we miss the mark because we're not doing that. He said, I made myself a slave to win more. In 2 Timothy 2.10, Paul says, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. This is what Paul did. This was who he was. He would endure whatever for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the souls of others. MacArthur, again, in, in one of his sermons said, Paul had an unwavering desire to see people saved. He loved people, and he cared that people not go to hell. He cared that they come to Christ, and he had decided to sacrifice anything and everything in his life if it might mean he could win more people to Christ. He was willing to set aside everything to win people, and he would do anything to see that happen. Anything. A lot of times people take this chapter of 1 Corinthians and they use it to basically say, I'm just trying to become all things, all people, and then they partake of everything. It, it actually means the exact opposite. It, it, was, it was all restrictions. Everything here was a restriction. Everything here d- d- kept him from things. He would enslave himself to these things so that he could win more to Christ. He's not saying, when I'm with the Jews, I pretend I'm a Jew. And when I'm a Gentile, I pretend like I'm a Gentile. And these guys drink, so I'm going to drink with them. And these guys, that, in fact, he even said, just in case you take it that way, I'm still under the law of Christ and of God, right in the middle of that whole thing. But he's saying the things that were in his life that would be a restriction amongst the Jews when he's with the Gentiles, he didn't practice those things because he didn't want that to be a hindrance. But when he's the Jew, 
Because he acted like a Jew. And he did things that the Jews would do. Even though he knows it's just, uh, that stuff has been fulfilled in Christ. And who cares about these things anymore? And again, we have actual examples of him doing this throughout the Bible. And this was also the example of Christ. Christ says, if you, whoever wishes to be first amongst you should be a slave of all. You want to be top-notch Christian? You want to be mature? You want to be like Christ? Be a slave to everybody around you for the sake of the gospel. The Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We've already read John 15, lay down your life for your friends. John, 1 John three sixteen. we know love by this. He laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our life for the brethren. That's all Paul was doing here. He was laying down his life. He says, to the Jews, I became like a Jew. He restrained his rights. He restrained his freedoms around the Jews. The Jews were restrained by all these laws. When Paul was around the Jews, he restrained himself with all these laws so that he did not unnecessarily offend any Jew and hinder any opportunity to exemplify Christ and proclaim Christ to the Jews. He didn't return to the law. He didn't attach righteousness or morality to the law. He wasn't looking at it that way. But when he was around the Jews, he acted like a Jew so that he did not hinder the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, he didn't bind himself to the Old Testament law. He restrained himself in love and accommodated their demands, even though they're the weaker brother or the unbelieving uh, uh, Israelite. He would abide in ceremonial regulations. He observed special days. He restrained himself from eating things that they thought were unclean and offensive because he was striving to be an example of Christ and to share the gospel with them. Again, we have a lot of examples. I didn't put these on the thing up here, but in Acts 15, uh, in Acts 15, even when the early church is trying to figure out what to tell the Gentiles, they told the Gentiles there was, there was a code there. There was a, 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 some, some rules that were not included in the New Testament. And they said, tell the Gentiles this, abstain from things contaminated by idols, from fornication, and from what is strangled, and from blood. There was a, a list of restraining rules for the early church. You know why? Because all of those things would have been offensive to the Jews. And what he's trying to tell the Gentiles is you are free in Christ. You do not have to submit to the law. You are not an Israelite. But refrain from these things so that you're not offensive. Does that make sense? It was a rule, a set of rules to not bring offense to your brothers and sisters who were coming from a Jewish background. That's why they did that. In Acts 16, 3. In Acts 16, Timothy took one for the team, right? Timothy actually was circumcised so that he would not be an offense when he and Paul went into Jewish territory to share the gospel. You talk about laying down a right and setting aside a preference. I mean, that's what Timothy did. Later on, when the Jews demanded that Titus be circumcised, Paul said no. Like when, when someone's demanding you to submit to a law that is not part of, and this was your, the little sermon you sent me, well, then you say, no, I'm not under the law. But when it's going to cause you to be offensive unnecessarily, give it up. And that's what Timothy did. Timothy laid that aside to be no hindrance, it says. He was circumcised. It actually says to be no hindrance. Um, and uh, Acts 18, Paul actually took a special Nazarite vow. He, uh, he, he not only took the vow, shaved his head, all that sort of stuff, which is all Jewish custom, but he was doing that, at, again, not to be offensive to the Jews. In Acts 21, he actually paid for these other Jewish people to go through a Jewish ritual to show that he's not trying to be offensive to the Jews. I mean, he's wasting his money. He's doing these things that he's not bound to at all. And he's doing all of that out of a love for the Jewish people, to show those Jewish people that I am not going to be an offense to you. I love you, and I want to share the gospel. Again, so it cost him money. It cost him his life. It cost him his rights. And he did that when he was around the Jews. When he was around those not under the law, he restrained his rights and his freedoms around the Gentiles so he did not unnecessarily offend the Gentiles and hinder any opportunity to exemplify Christ and proclaim Christ. Um, and, and he still was under the law of God and under the law of Christ, but he lived with the Gentiles like a Gentile, not like a Jew, so that they wouldn't take any offense. He's not talking about sin. He's not talking about loose living. And he's not talking about unrestraint. He's, he, and people misuse this verse all the time to justify sinful habits and sinful decisions for the sake of the gospel. 
Friends go to bars with other people because they just want to be like the Gentiles so they can share the gospel. And they, they uh, eat and wear things and, and do things that only the, the culture around them is doing because they don't want to be offensive to the culture. But the problem is, is a lot of times they're not doing the very thing that they're called to do in the midst of all of that which is to be the light of Christ and to share the gospel of Jesus Christ and to be unique and different and to be an example of holiness and point them towards Christ. They just use these verses as a way to justify their loose living, which is the exact opposite of what Paul was saying. Paul was saying, restrain yourself from all things so that you can share the gospel of Jesus Christ. To the weak, he restrained his rights and his freedoms around the weaker brother. If they're weak, well, then you be weak. Be weak with them, is what he's basically saying. And he did this in order to not offend an immature, younger, or weaker brother, and to hinder an opportunity to exemplify Christ and proclaim the gospel. He says, I have become all things to all men, so that by all means, uh, uh, I'm sorry, so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel. Loving others, limiting our liberties, refusing our God-given rights, um, disciplining ourselves with self-control. This takes discernment and wisdom. Again, you've got you to you gotta know the people you're around. You have to assess the situation. You have to understand what would be a hindrance and what wouldn't be a hindrance. And that's going to take getting to know people. That's going to take talking to them. That's going to take using wisdom. This isn't just some blanket thing that you can just throw out there and be like, well, I've got I to gotta never eat meat again. It's like, that's not what he's saying. He's saying you be able to restrain yourself at all costs for, for in, in anything. To, to be an example of Christ and to proclaim not only more clearly, but with a, 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 a life that backs up what you're saying, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that takes thought. It's purposeful self-restraint. It's motivated by selfless love. And it's displayed in a preference and a deference to other people. Again, we don't just look around and go, well, they're weaker. You, know? you look around and you go, they're weaker. I'm going to be weak when I'm around them. Well, they, they got these customs. Well, then I'm going to be like that when I'm around them. Not, not in a way that causes you to sing against the Lord, but in a way that you're striving to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, to be an example of Christ, showing self-restraint and, and love. Our desire, our flesh, our mind will resist this. Again, because it's hard, and it takes work, and it takes self-control. And we have to give up things that we like, and we have to give up things that aren't sinful. And we don't like that. We don't like somebody imposing rules on us that aren't rules that Christ gave to us. But Christ did give us the rule that you be willing to lay down your life for others. There's your rule. And so then you have to use submission and and deference and, and wisdom to figure out what that looks like with me or with somebody else in this room. It takes work to love others like this. It takes working against your preferences and against your desires, against your comforts, and against your freedoms and your rights. It's a hard path, but it leads to joy, and it leads to freedom, and it leads to more discernment and love and holiness. Anybody that's striving down this path would never go back to that whole, hey, I want to live in my freedoms. That looks like enslavement. Anyone that's on the path of holiness and the path of love and the path of striving to share the gospel at all costs... They don't want to return to that silly, immature stuff. I mean, that, that's what flimsy Christians do. We want to be like Christ, and we want to give up anything for Christ. It's a path that we want to be on, and the joy that comes in doing it is wonderful. Um, again, here's another MacArthur, MacArthur quote. He said, for Paul, he said, what had once been legal restraints had now become love restraints. He's still doing some of the things that were under the law, but he does it out of love now. Not because it's a law. Not because he's trying to obey God. Not because there's morality attached to it, but because there's people's souls attached to it. Holding tight to liberties and rights is a sure way to lose the race of soul winning. Many of the Corinthian Christians seriously limited their testimony because they would not limit their liberty. They refused to give up their rights, and in doing so, they won a few, and they offended many. We don't want that, right? We want to strive to win many. All right, let me finish real quick. Love controls self for Christ. Here's the the end of this chapter. He says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. And he's talking about souls here. Everyone who competes in the games. Now, remember the the Isthmian games that we talked about last week? That's why I shared that with you. The Isthmian games were on the off years, the Olympic games. They would win this pine wreath. Only one person won. There's no soul. 
and gold medal. It was just, you win, you got the pine wreath. And so he's saying, in the same way that you understand this with these games that happen here every other year, he's saying, everyone who competes in the Isthmian games exercises self-control in all things. And then they do it to receive a perishable wreath. I mean, that doesn't last long, right? They train and they work and they beat their body into submission. They strive to win in order to get that. And he's like, we're striving for souls, eternal souls. Do you understand the prize is so much greater than a silly pine wreath? He says, they do this to receive a perishable wreath. But we, an imperishable. You're, you're, you're aiming at something so much greater than the Olympic athletes. Actually, MacArthur in his sermon said, and this was in 76, so it's probably worth more now. But he said, that gold medal that they receive is worth $110. You know, and it's just like, think about what an Olympic athlete puts in to train and to work to get that gold medal. And, and again, it may be gold. It may be better than a pine wreath that's still worthless. It's a worthless chunk of metal that you can't take with you. And we're Christians. And we're saying that we're training to win souls and to glorify Christ and to gain eternal reward as we strive to live a life faithful and submissive to Him. It's a lot bigger than a gold medal is the point. He says, therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. He's saying, I, I, I purposefully, everything I do in life is purposed and thought out, and I am aiming at one thing. He says, I box in such a way, not beating the air. Again, same metaphor. But I discipline my body. I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Paul exercised very well thought out restraint, self-control and discipline purposefully for the souls of other people, for the glory of Jesus Christ and for the unity of the church. And that governed his training, if you want to say it that way. That's why he worked when he is in Corinth. That's why he did what he did. And that's what we want to aim at. Lose your rights. Gain the prize. Control yourself. Deny yourself anything in order to win others to Christ. Paul's basically telling him, telling them that you're losing the prize as you fight for your rights. So drop the rights and shoot for the souls of your brethren. Again, even, even the, the, the secular world, the wise people in the secular world understand the need for self-control and self-denial and self-discipline. I, I was looking up different quotes, and I just got Aristotle and Plato because those guys are supposed to be smart. But Aristotle said, what lies in our power to do lies in our power not to do. Even the unbelieving world understands Strength and self-control. Plato said the first and greatest victory is to conquer self. I mean, the world gets it. Why don't we get it sometimes? John MacArthur, right up there with Plato, said there are only, <laughs> there are only two kinds of people in the world. The people who have self-discipline and the people who don't. And he says, and the people who have self-discipline are running the world. You must have self-control, both in this current life and for eternal life. And then Paul said, I discipline my body, I make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. He fought against his body, and he fought against his mind, and his appetites, and his flesh. He fought his desires, and his wants, and his freedoms, and he enslaved himself to others, to training and to practicing, so that he would win souls. Again, Paul says this to Timothy, he says this to the Galatian church, every good thing requires self-discipline and self-control. He says to Timothy, Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Bodily discipline is only profitable, or little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds the promise for the present life and also the life to come. Galatians 5, again, the fruit of the Spirit. One of the fruits that the Spirit is working in you is that you have self-control. If you're without self-control, then it's a good reason to check your life and to go, is the Spirit actually working within me? So again, you've got to bring it back down to what the Lord has said. And we are striving to discipline ourselves. And we have a greater prize, the souls of other people. Now, we've already said this once, but here it is again. Christ said it in Matthew 16 as well. We must deny, or if you want to come after him, deny yourself. Take up, take up your cross and follow him. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. So the point of this whole chapter and the point that Paul's making, and then he's going to drive it home next week in chapter 10, is that, that, love, that, that uh, love will give up liberties and give up rights and have self-denial and self-control out of a love for the souls of others and for Jesus Christ. And here's the last MacArthur quote. Many believers start the Christian life, and this is, this is convicting. 
I mean, I put this one in here because this is the one that pierced me right into the heart. And I hope it does to you too. Many believers start the Christian life with enthusiasm and devotion. They trained carefully for a while. But soon they tire of the effort and begin to break training. Before long, they are disqualified from being effective witnesses. They do not have what it takes because they are unwilling to pay the price. The flesh, the world, everyday affairs, personal interests, and often simple laziness hinder spiritual growth. And the preparation for service, even good things, can interfere with the best. Fulfillment of freedoms can interfere with the fulfillment of love. And following our own ways can keep others from knowing the way. Souls are won by those who are prepared to be used when the Spirit chooses to use them. That is a good quote. We do not want to get lazy. We don't want to start well and just putter out along the way. You want to end well and end strong. And you want your soul focused to be the glory of Christ and the love of the church and the souls of those around you. There's many distractions. There's family. There's work. There's just life. Do not be distracted by the things of this life, but be precision focused on the thing that Christ has called us to. And that gives you clarity when it comes to what to do with freedoms and liberties. Let's pray.